Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to the second of the Hitchcock lecture series. Um, I'm, my, my, I'm Fan Yong Lu, a professor from School of Public Health and also the chair of the graduate group of Comparative Biochemistry. On behalf of the dean of the graduate division, as well as the Hitchcock Selection Committee, it's my great pleasure as well as my honor to introduce today's speaker, Professor Sidney Altman. Professor Altman is truly a distinguished scientist and an outstanding teacher. More importantly, he's also a wonderful mentor as I personally experienced as a postdoc fellow in his laboratory at Yale. I will not repeat the long, li the long list of his accomplishment here as a Professor Lester did yesterday. However, I would only want to add that he has spent his entire 40 plus years career focused on a single yet critically important enzyme called ribonucleus P or RNASP. His scientific journey on RNASP is an inspiring story. It starts with his initial discovery of the substrate as well as the enzymatic activity of the enzyme RNSP. When he was a postdoc fellow, under the guidance of Sidney Brenner and Francis Crick at MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, England. He then moved to Yale, subsequently cloning the RNA subunit of the enzyme RNSP and demonstrating the, catalytic, demonstrating the catalytic activity of the RNA subunit. His research has revolutionized the field of molecular biology, specifically the function of RNA molecules. Today, he will give us his personal reflection of the discovery of the catalytic RNA and share with us his recent research progress in his laboratory. And please join me in welcoming Professor Altman. Thank you very much, Fen Yang, for the uh, introduction and for your wonderful hospitality during my visit here. And once again, I want to thank the members of the Hitchcock Committee for selecting me for these lectures. And I hope I uh, deliver in some reasonable way. I want to start by repeating uh, something I said at the beginning of yesterday's lecture, uh, which is that you've all paid for my research over the past 30 or 40 years. Your income tax, of which a few pennies on a dollar, so to speak, are devoted to my particular research through the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. And I want to thank all of you taxpayers for your donations over the years. Uh, I feel that's a way of indicating my uh, appreciation instead of showing a slide with many different names and many different agencies on it. Okay, so yesterday we talked about uh, uh, the origin of life a little bit and, and what the RNA world was. And today I'm going to focus on ribonuclease P, which Fen Yang indicated, uh, which has a subunit uh, that is catalytic. Uh, 
And what I'm going to do is talk about both the RNA and the protein subunits of RNA-sp in various organisms. And I want to indicate that RNA-sp is an essential enzyme in all organisms. Uh, I won't go through the data, but it is clear that without RNA-sp, these organisms don't grow. And I, after I talk a little bit about the enzyme, I'm going to talk about different substrates, both in uh, E. coli and in higher organisms. And then the last part of my lecture will be on some recent experiments in my lab uh, in which RNA-sp is an important mechanism in providing a drug therapy. The first slide you see is a, an old slide, and it indicates the first substrate for RNA-sp. This is a tRNA molecule, as I showed you yesterday. It's in two dimensions. And these are extra nucleotides at one side of it. And RNA-sp cuts right here at nucleotide one of the mature tRNA sequence. So all these nucleotides are removed. These nucleotides are extra nucleotides too, and they're removed by different enzymes. So essentially, we make virtually a functional tRNA out of this cleavage here. One of the problems we had to confront, and I think we solved it as I'll show you later, is what is the specificity of this enzyme? In fact, there are about 60 different tRNA precursors in every cell. None of them have a none of them have a consensus sequence or similar sequences around the cleavage site. And so how does this uh, enzyme recognize its substrate? It does recognize it by looking at a partial RNA helix on this side of the substrate and a single-stranded region on this side here. We have two extra base pairs here, but it's not at all clear that they form in, in vivo under the conditions that we're talking about. Now, this is a chart which characterizes the catalytic activity of the RNA subunit of RNA-sp. Let me just say, although you cannot see it, clearly it's not shown here, the structure of the catalytic subunit, although I will show a picture of that as it has been recently crystallized by Mondragon at Northwestern University, the catalytic structure is extremely similar in all organisms. However, there is one difference between that and the proteins in the enzyme. In E. coli bacteria, uh, let's say in E. coli and in bacteria generally, there's one RNA subunit, which is catalytic, and there's one very small protein subunit. And if we can rate the catalytic activity in bacteria, let's say it's of the order of 1 to 10 here. Then we have other the species involve the archaea, which we now <clears throat> classify as a separate uh, kingdom here, and the eukarya, eukaryotes. <clears throat> in archaea, there's one RNA subunit and four, and possibly some cases more, uh, proteins in the enzyme. The, ribid the RNA subunit is catalytic, in several cases tested, but the catalytic activity is only about one-tenth to one-hundredth of that compared to that in E. coli, but it's easily recognizable. And this is at pH 6, where, in fact, there's very little degradation of the RNA, 
as you incubate it in a reaction mixture so that you can run reaction times overnight at pH 6 under the conditions uh, Leif Kirsebaum in Sweden really devised, and you can easily see very low amounts of activity. And Kirsebaum and his group found that the uh, RNA from a couple of eukarya, as there's one RNA subunit, and there are nine or more protein subunits, and the catalytic activity here is about 10 to the minus 5 compared to the catalytic activity here. So these are uh, measurements that have been made rather carefully, so we're very confident of these numbers. Uh, this indicates the uncatalyzed reaction, so if you just let the substrate sit around, you'll find the uh, cleavage rate is around 10 to the minus 9 or so. And here are the relative uh, references. Garrier, Takata et al., and E. coli, Panucci et al., in at least one of the archaea, and Kikovska and Kirsebaum et al. on uh, eukaryotes. Uh, I think that's all I'm going to say about the RNA uh, at the moment. Now we're going to talk about diversity in the subunit composition of RNA-sp. So we have in bacteria one uh, protein, which we call, we had labeled a long time ago, C5 protein because of just of its position in gels. In archaea, there are four different proteins. And now another one has been characterized, which is actually a ribosomal subunit, which, when added to these four, stimulates the activity considerably. And it has some homology with one of the proteins found in uh, yeast and in HeLa cells. And we have in HeLa cells, for, this is a human enzyme, 10 subunits here, and you can see some of them have homology to the archaea subunits. Here's RPP30 here, RPP38 here, etc. RPP21 and 29 and POP5 here. But there are several subunits here, and as I indicated from the previous slide, <clears throat> they appear to contribute to the catalytic activity. And by saying appear to contribute, it, it could very well mean stimulating the RNA activity by itself by adding these various proteins. So I should also say something about the evolution of the RNA subunit. The shape, as you can draw it in at least two dimensions, is very similar uh, from bacteria up to human cells. Uh, there are some differences. Generally, it's about the RNA is about 350 nucleotides in size, but there are a couple of yeasts where it's only 250 nucleotides in size, and there are a couple of other organisms where it's like 800 or 900 nucleotides in size. However, the difference in size corresponds to a difference in the recognition of certain subunits and does not seem to affect generally what we observe. The catalytic portion of the enzyme remains more or less constant, although does change somewhat between the eukarya and bacteria. And this is, these slides are from Venkat Gopalan at Ohio, Ohio State University. And this gives an indication of the evolution of the protein subunits. We have a common ancestor here where presumably RNA-sp lacked protein subunits. And although there's no direct evidence, there's nothing to indicate that that 
should not be the case. We know that if we isolate the RNA subunit by itself in test tubes in vitro, it has the catalytic activity that is for bacteria, and we can show it for these other organisms. And then <clears throat> for bacteria, there's the origin of a single protein cofactor. And for the other uh, organisms here, apparently you start sharing four protein subunits, and then you have the archaea, and the eukarya are out here. So this is a rough picture of the evolution of this enzyme in terms, if I may make the uh, reference to what I talked about yesterday, this is an indication of the complexity of evolution as it goes along. So let's not think about humans as uh, thinking individuals for a moment, but if we just look at the structure of a key enzyme in this case and determine what goes on, the bacteria are very simple, but eukaryotes are quite complicated in this particular case, and we see that the proteins seem to have replaced the contribution of RNA in terms of the catalytic activity. Now I'm going to talk about some substrates that have been found in E. coli to date, and some of them exist in other bacteria as well. First, we have tRNA precursors, which are listed here, and as I said, they're about 60 different precursors in any particular organism, bacteria, or eukaryotes. Then we have uh, uh, 4.5 sRNA, in which the structure can be drawn like this, so long double-stranded regions, long hairpin. But the precursor has extra nucleotides here, and the arrow indicates where E. coli will cleave it, just at this point here. So this, in fact, was good reason to believe that our other data on the structural features that are required for cleavage by RNA-sp is correct. That is to say, we have a long period of double-stranded RNA here, of which actually you only need about a half a uh, helical uh, strand of R a helical twist of RNA, and a single-stranded region here. <clears throat> uh, this is another similar substrate from E. coli. Here are others. I won't go into what they're doing at the moment. Uh, this is a phage RNA, actually. This is actually tmRNA, or an RNA which is both a messenger RNA and looks like a tRNA. That is to say, there's a coding region in this region here, and it codes for a small protein of about 11 amino acids, which tags proteins that are to be degraded inside E. coli and other organisms. But the ends of the molecule look just like a tRNA molecule, and it has a precursor sequence here, <clears throat> and RNA cleaves it right here. So this is, these are all important molecules in E. coli, and they have, they're not unstable molecules. They have reasonable lifetimes inside cells, and if you know how to look for them, and now we know how to look for these, you can find them quite easily. Uh, several years ago, about seven or eight years ago, in my lab it was found that there was another set of substrates for RNAsp, and it remains to be shown by really rigorous experiments that this does function in uh, gene regulation. But we've shown in model systems that it does. 
So here are various uh, operons indicated. An operon is a region that has three genes, usually coding for uh, a similar metabolic function, but not always. Uh, <clears throat> here's another one here with five genes. Here's the histidine operon with several genes. And the fat arrows are coding regions for proteins. And these narrow lines here are the regions between proteins. And what we can say, for example, is that RNASP in these cases cleaves in the regions between the coding regions. So these underlines indicate cleavage here, one here, one here, and one in this region right here. We, we isolated these molecules just by looking at a temperature-sensitive mutant in RNASP at a high temperature, and we picked these molecules out from many molecules that you could find under these conditions that did not appear under normal growth conditions. So these are some examples of cleavage in an operon, but it's much easier to do things in an operon that you really recognize, which is the LAC operon for the metabolism of lactose. And here we have the LAC operon. There are three genes, LAC-Z, LAC-Y, LAC-A, and we know what each one of these codes for, and here are the intergenic regions right here. So here's the end of the LAC-Y uh, LAC region in this particular case. So we're looking at this region in here, and this is the beginning of the LAC-A operon, a UUG. This is a UAA here. And this is what the region between the two coding proteins looks like. And it looks like it actually has a structure that would be recognized RNASP. And in fact, it does. This is where P cleaves it's right here. And I won't go into data, but this just indicates what I'm talking about. That is to say, if we put this structure <clears throat> uh, on a piece of genetic information where it's coded for, in an, a bacterium where we can turn off RNASP when we want to, and we can do that, we show that when we turn this off, we make more of LAC-A. When we uh, allow P to function, we make much less of LAC-A because you get cleavage here and degradation under these cases. Now, it was noticed in the 60s when RNASP, uh, excuse me, when the LAC-Z operon was being studied by many people that there was a significant difference between the translation or the production of these three genes here. In fact, there was much less of LAC-A made than LAC-Y or LAC-Z, and there was really no explanation at all given for that. And I think in this case, with the model system, we have actually supplied that explanation. But this simply gives you another indicator of the uh, range and variety of uh, substrates for RNASP in bacteria. So we can talk a little bit about now uh, in eukaryotes, and David Spector some time ago uh, published a paper in RNA, I think it was 2000, it was either early in 2010, uh, yes it was, and he asked us for samples of RNASP from HeLa cells, which we sent to him, and he was looking at a substrate that looked like this. Uh, we don't have to worry about most of this. This is just uh, taken from his paper, 
In fact, he was looking at a very long piece of messenger RNA, and inside the message, he identified what looked like a tRNA molecule here. And as it turns out, RNase-P does cleave this molecule right at the junction of the single and double-stranded region here, and you wind up with this. Okay? This f describes further events in the pathway, which I'm not interested in for our purposes at the moment. But he clearly had found that RNase-P does cut in that particular position, and he recently told me that he has at least one other such case of substrates that look like this in eukaryotes. So that's satisfying. We already knew from previous experiments, of course, that RNase-P cut tRNA precursors, for example, in HeLa cells or mouse cells or any other organism that you wanted to look at. And we know that RNase-P is actually located in the nucleus of eukarya, and I might mention that a little later. So it cleaves tRNA precursor. It cleaves these uh, long messages with tRNAs in the middle of them. And we have evidence, and we've published evidence, that it cleaves ribosomal RNA precursors in HeLa cells and in yeast. Uh, it's hard to get purified ribosomal precursors, but the evidence we have is pretty convincing. So we have at least three classes of substrates in eukaryotes, and I'm sure there are more substrates. It's just that we haven't, uh, and I don't think anybody has uh, made the effort to look for more. Now, it had been suggested for some time that in various organelles in eukaryotes, for example, mitochondria or chloroplasts, for example, that there was no RNase P of the kind that I've mentioned. It had been indicated there was RNase P that contained no RNA at all. However, a recent paper by uh, Kohler and Titel and Cell this year, a few months ago, uh, it actually was quite a remarkable paper. It was on the function of an enzyme, polynucleotide phosphorylase, PNPase, which is responsible for importing uh, various pieces of RNA into mitochondria in human cells. And one of the things it imports is RNase-P. And in fact, Titel and uh, Kohler and their co-workers showed that there were certain sequences that actually were cleaved by the conventional RNase-P. Now, these diagrams are taken from another paper, but it doesn't really matter. They demonstrate what I wanted to show. And that is, when you have R the classical RNase-P with an RNA subunit, and in mitochondria you have situations where you have a long piece of RNA, and interior in the RNA there might be two tRNA sequences. You have messenger RNA here, messenger RNA here, and in these kinds of cases, RNase-P cuts it here, the beginning of this tRNA, and cuts it here, the beginning of this tRNA. It had been shown by people who worked on uh, these enzymes that don't, uh, supposedly don't have RNA associated with them, that if you have an RNA like this at the head of a region where there's a messenger RNA here and you have one RNA here, that that these other enzymes cleave this RNA at this particular point. So that is a remarkable new finding. I found that the whole, the whole 
paper that I looked at in this case was a very interesting paper and very useful, and it showed, in fact, that RNASP seems to be uh, in quotations everywhere, the classical RNASP. Uh, there's one other thing I'd like to show you about the structure of the enzyme, and it's complicated. It's essentially the crystal structure, a fantastic crystal structure, uh, performed by Mondragon and his colleagues at Northwestern University. They have made, they have done, the, they have solved the crystal structure of the ternary complex, which contains the RNA subunit of RNAsp from a uh, bacterium that's not too different from E. coli, the protein subunit of the complex, the tRNA product of the complex, and a single-stranded piece of RNA which supposedly would represent the cleavage product from a tRNA precursor. So effectively, we're looking at the product of the reaction with the product in the substrate. Uh, this paper will be published in Nature soon. Uh, I can effectively guarantee that. Okay, so this is a different way of looking at it from what the conventional picture is, but here we have in uh, blue or purple, whatever you want to call it, the RNA's pRNA, uh, and it's organized in this particular way. Usually, we turn it at least by 90 degrees and look at it from that point of view, but that's all right. And I'm not going to go into any of the crystallographic details at the moment. I simply want to show that this is what has been found and how it, it uh, uh, confirms some of the predictions that were earlier made. This is the tRNA precursor here. So this is the anticodon stem down here. And this is the recognition site here at the junction of the tRNA molecule. And there would be a, a single-stranded region which we can't identify here. And the protein cofactor is located in this region here. Uh, now, there has been a lot of RNA uh, work done on this before the crystal structure. So we already knew something about which parts of the RNA were in contact with the protein. We knew by cross-linking studies which part of the tRNA were in contact uh, with this piece of the RNA, too. Nevertheless, uh, I think this is a uh, fantastic piece of crystallography and very interesting work. So I offer my congratulations to Mondragon. We had shown that the RNA-sp in complex with a substrate has different conformations. It can be the transient state or the active state of the enzyme, and we don't know anything about that yet. It could be the free substrate, or it could be the cleave product and the single-stranded region. But we had shown from various enzymological experiments in vitro that these three sites, these three conformations must exist, and Mondragon has succeeded in producing the crystal structure of this one. We had also shown from cross-linking and other studies that the amino acid helix of the substrate is denatured during the cleavage product. That is to say, at the helical end of the tRNA precursor, where usually the uh, 
at the three prime end, a, an amino acid is attached, and the five prime end, you have an extra substrate. Those strands come apart, so it's no longer a double-stranded region in the helix. And we'd shown that that was the case, and if you cross-link the helix and it could not denature, then you got no enzymatic reaction at all. And that was confirmed uh, by this particular uh, structure. It was shown by Mondragon that, in fact, the two parts of this helix are denatured in the complex. And furthermore, the position of the protein has been specified by various methods, and the crystal structure confirmed all of that, too. So it's quite satisfying. Okay. I'm going to go on now to some recent work in our lab, and I might skip some stuff because I don't want to go over time. First of all, here's the classical tRNA precursor, and it was from these molecules that, in fact, we first deleted this region here, this stem and loop, and this stem and loop. It was done with Bill McLean, and we covalently linked this to this, and that was a very good substrate. It was just one continuous helix with a loop. And then Tony Forster, a postdoc from Australia, uh, this is 15 years ago at least, uh, succeeded in deleting this loop here. So we're just left with this strand, hydrogen, uh, hydrogen bonded to this strand here. And if you draw that differently, this is what you see. In fact, these are now two different RNA molecules but they get cleaved very well by RNAsP at this point here. And they've been drawn in different colors here but because now they represent the uh, basis of the therapy I'm going to talk about. This can be any target RNA in a cell, any cell. Okay? And as long as you have another piece of RNA that can hydrogen bond to it here, this is especially true of bacteria in this case, we call this the exter external guide sequence, the EGS. And as long as this can hydrogen bond here, this is still a very good substrate. It's just an imitation of model substrates we made, and it's cleaved by RNAsP. Now, <clears throat> if we have a piece of DNA, which is made into an RNA or messenger RNA, whatever you want, and there's no external guide sequence involved, you make protein the regular state of affairs. If you have an extra guide, uh, guide sequence, external guide sequence, hydrogen bonded to the piece of message, then cleavage is going to occur at one particular end of the EGS, and you're going to get mRNA cleavage there by the host cell RNAs P, which recognizes this is a substrate, and you're going to inactivate this particular RNA, and you're going to stop it from expressing itself completely. So if the RNA is a viral RNA or an RNA that codes for a particular disease, you're going to absolutely stop it from functioning under those conditions. So that's the basis of the therapy, that you have this situation and you have the RNAsP which is, exists inside the cell, and so you can do all these things. Now these are some ways of uh, transporting any piece of RNA, it's, uh, there are various other mechanisms in which RNA is involved, and I'm not going to talk about them at the moment. Let me just say that the method I'm going to describe is just as good as siRNA. We've tested siRNA on the same targets 
as we've tested the EGS on, and the uh, numbers are very comparable. You can have things attached to antibodies, which themselves attach to particular parts of cells. You can have them attached or inserted into viruses, which then infect cells. You can have oligonucleotides encompassed in liposomes, which are lipid bodies that will uh, wrap around a piece of RNA, or a nanoparticle containing some RNA, or you can have basic peptides attached to pieces of RNA. Uh, although our previous work had been done biologically, that is to say we made small genes that coded for EGSs and inserted them into bacteria, and they certainly work in E. coli and some other organisms. But now we're doing these experiments with basic peptides with morpholino-oligonucleotides. And I'll show you a picture of that uh, very shortly. And uh, this is just an indication of the kinds of uh, RNA you could use to shut down gene expression. Uh, there are aptamers, which are small molecules that bind to particular uh, sequences. So these are made out of RNA, let us say. Hammerhead ribozymes, which are not very good, I think. Uh, siRNA, which can be used in human cells, for example. Uh, splicing variants, which have been used to attack certain diseases in which there is a splicing variant that causes diseases like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And you can adjust that splicing variance back to the normal situation and in a couple of papers which have been published, you get some improvement in the muscular dystrophy, the EGS, which is, I'm going to which is what I'm going to talk about, locked nuclear RNA, which is another variant on RNA, and peptide nuclear RNA. I'm not going to talk much about these, but they can be useful. This is an old slide showing results with our biological effects. Simply that an E. coli, for example, uh, we can inhibit the expression of various these genes. When you induce beta-galactosidase or alkaline phosphatase, they're made at a level of over a thousandfold of the constitutive level. So normally they're hardly made at all, but you can induce them, and then the level goes up. With one EGS attacking one site in the message, you knock out 60% of the activity. These are essential genes, but this one is the one that we're interested in, drug resistance. <clears throat> we're looking essentially at chloramphenicol resistance, and we can stop that. We can reverse that into chloramphenicol sensitivity of a bacteria 100% by using two EGSs that attack two different sites in the messenger RNA that codes for chloramphenicol resistance. Okay, you can say that's all right, but conventional antibiotics are just as good. Well, they're not just as good. A one-step mutation can convert something that's sensitive to drug resistance. In our case, three mutations, as long as they're not right next to each other in the EGS, can still function. So it's clear that that is a much better biological result than the conventional uh, method of doing things. And uh, this has also been replicated by somebody else, in and actually in California, now that I'm here, uh, on amicacin resistance. Uh, just let me go on now. 
very briefly, I will say that we can now isolate an EGS in a few hours, uh, providing you have a supply of E. coli RNAsp on hand, which is very easy to arrange, and a half mil uh, solution of a piece of random RNA. So in our case, we might have something of this long here, where N is the random RNA in these pieces, and we have various restriction sites here. And we just incubate this. You can label the target RNA in any particular uh, any particular RNA you want. You can mix that labeled target RNA with this random oligo here, and then incubate it for 15 minutes with RNAsp, and run it out on a gel. It takes two hours perhaps, develop a film on the gel, and you will see immediately whether or not you had any cleavage of the target RNA. And in fact, we've shown this uh, prolifically over the last couple of years using this method. We've identified EGSs in many different bacteria, uh, and they can be used for drug sensitivity uh, to target pathogenic regions in pathogenic RNA, uh, it's a very convenient method. Now, let's get to this new method, which is the basic peptides attached to morpholino oligos. This is a morpholino oligo. You see the phosphate linkages are not quite what you would expect. There's a nitrogen in here. Uh, this is a morpholino uh, sugar in here, a nitrogen in it. But the bases appear as they usually appear. So, and the other aspect of using this is that the morpholinos are tremendously resistant to nonspecific nucleases. So you can in incubate them with human serum or bacterial growth medium, and they don't get degraded for at least 24 hours, probably much longer than that. And that's why we use them. Now you attach a basic peptide at one end, and here it's uh, 14... Uh, amino acid residues, R is arginine, X is six amino hexanoic acid. So there are four uh, repeats of this, X again, and then beta alanine. And this makes the uh, covalent linkage uh, very powerful in terms of penetrating bacteria. We published this uh, about a year and a half ago or so. Let me just say that if we have if we're looking at uh, chloramphenicol resistance in this case, and we're using two EGSs, uh, which have been made into morpholino oligos with a basic peptide attached. These are controlled bacteria after four hours, a scrambled oligo of the morpholino, so it's almost as good as the control. Two separate EGSs, and two EGSs together. So in this particular case, we're down around uh, a thousandth of what we would have expected for the control bacteria, uh, which is actually a very, a very good number. Uh, so that's at 50 micromolar. Uh, when we do it with B. subtilis and activating the gyra gene in B. subtilis, we only need 5 micromolar of this, and we're down to about, um, in this case, only 0.2 of the viability of this, if we do this at 15 micromolar, we're down to about 1% the viability of the control. 
So that works extremely well. And let me just say in, in an experiment that was finished a couple of weeks ago, I'll just show some rough data. We are now doing the experiment with a different basic peptide. It's a basic peptide that has been isolated from human cells that controls T-cell regulation. And it's 22 amino acids long. It's written up here. It is also very basic, and we've uh, attached that to a morpholino oligo. And this is chlorophenicol resistance. So we're down in the level between a thousandth and a ten thousandth uh, viability here. These are two different preparations. This preparation is obviously much better, and that's what we're working on at the moment. And this is a five micromolar uh, concentration of the particular compound that I worked on, that I told you about. So that's a, a summary of some of our recent data. I have some more data on some molecular biological aspects of the morpholino oligos and how they interact with sites and message, but I'm not going to show that to you because it's getting late. And I'll just show you this one other experiment, which is a, an older summary of experiments in uh, eukaryotic cells. And I'm sure Fen Yang will recognize some of this. Uh, I'm not going to talk about cerevisiae right now. But we can inhibit flu viruses in mouse or canine cells by attacking two different genes in the flu virus. Remember, the flu virus has eight genes, and it also has eight pieces of RNA in its genome. Each piece of RNA codes for a particular one of its genes. And by attacking both of these particular genes, we essentially can inactivate flu virus by 100%. But I indicate 95% because there's a 5% error in our methods. Uh, these are essential proteins in E. coli and uh, HeLa cells. I won't talk about them more at the moment. But Fenyang Lu has been working for many years on uh, cytomegalovirus in mice and in humans. And actually, these are old data which showing that he can inhibit these particular functions. But I believe that he's also been able to show the uh, inhibition of live animals under these conditions. So, and also herpes, herpes virus, which he also did in our lab a long time ago. So I think this is a very uh, promising method to use, and one that's certainly worth uh, studying. It is not necessarily adding to our molecular biological knowledge of RNA-sp itself and what it's done, but it shows that RNA-sp can be used in very useful ways, in this case, to attack all kinds of disease. And with that, I shall leave you. Sid, I'm curious how the basic peptide morpholino penetrates into bacteria so efficiently. It's not the same kind of mechanism that basic peptides like TAT enter into mammalian cells. It must be something different. Uh, I'm not sure it's very different at all, quite frankly. Um, TAT peptide penetrates into, into mammalian cells by first being internalized into an endosome and from the endosome... Uh, say the, say the second half of that sentence again? The, the TAT peptide, yeah. basic peptide, penetrates into mammalian cells by first being internalized into an endosome and okay. then from there into the cytoplasm. No, no. That, that's no, not happening. No, no. It's, it's certainly not that. Yeah. That's right. 
I'm curious about the toxicity and pharmacokinetics of these molecules. I don't know anything about it because I haven't done any experiments with live animals. Mm -hmm. However, uh, there are people who have done experiments with these kinds of of, uh, compounds at Avi Biopharma, which is a company now located uh, outside of Seattle, and they have cured infected mice under these conditions, Mm -hmm. and the mice don't suffer at all under the conditions they use. They just survive for several weeks afterwards. That's encouraging. Thanks. When you showed the cleavage of some of the polycystronic messenger RNAs in E. coli, I assume that was an in vitro experiment. Uh, no, we've done it both ways. Because it for, was pretty the, inefficient. In, in, it was only a few percent of the of the intact transcript that oh, was converted no, no. to product. So no. how there, do you expect there, it to There are two different slides there. One was of several different operons. That was done in vivo. Okay? And then we did the LAC operon, which was done in vitro and in vivo. But, but it's only a few percent of the message, even in vitro, where you, uh, is it more efficient in vivo, the, the degree of cleavage of the intact transcript? It was, the full-length transcript persisted, you know, 95% of it was still there after, you know, more than an hour incubation. Well, let me put it this way with a lac operon. Uh-huh. We completely destroyed part of the lac operon in vivo. Uh-huh. Okay? So it's more that efficient. Was a, that's, that was with a model system. Now, the other, the, so... You know, I don't know what you want to say about that. With the other operons, it is true that we don't have a good idea of the quantitative uh, result of those experiments. Okay. So does the bacterial protein stimulate the RNA of uh, archaea and so forth? In other words, is if you com- combine the different proteins and RNAs, are the proteins still active? Which protein? <clears throat> the RNAs P protein. From, so immediately, does the RNA's P protein from E. coli, for example, stimulate the RNA uh, of RNA's P from archaea and, and so forth? Well, if you're talking about experiments using an EGS to... Uh, no, no, this is going back to the beginning of, of your talk. Well, just under normal conditions? Yeah. Yeah. The amount of the uh, P protein for RNA's P, there are about 500 cop- four to 500 copies in the cell. And if you try and activate uh, RNA-P by attacking the message for the P protein, which we have done, it actually takes several more hours to kill those bacteria than it does, for example, to just change chloramphenicol resistance to sensitivity because you have to deplete that reservoir until you're down to maybe 20 molecules per cell, which is apparently not enough to keep the molecules going. What needs to be done to bring EGS as a therapeutic technology into the industry? Somebody has to provide a few million dollars to set up a company to uh, investigate this for commercial purposes and to build a reasonable system for delivering the covalent linkage of the basic peptide to the morpholino. So I don't know anybody with a few million dollars who's willing to do that, and I'm, I'm not a great entrepreneur. So I can't do anything about it. A follow-up question. Is it easier to design an EGS for viruses or as opposed to cancers? In, princi- in principle, you could, for virus, certainly for viruses. And that's what Fenyang is doing. Well, I want to follow a Stu's question. 
how much we know about the biogenesis of the enzyme in terms of the RNA subunit and the protein subunit uh, I, in E. coli. Just, just a minute. Could uh, you stand a little bit further back from the microphone? Not that far back. Okay. So how much we know about the biogenesis of the RNA and protein subunit in E. coli? I mean, specifically when the bacteria grow under different conditions, like under stress or under rich medium. That's Do we see any... For the protein? As well as the RNA subunit. Okay. Is there any regulation? The, the protein is made in an operon uh, with some ribosomal proteins in it. Uh, and supposedly the, there is a binding... The sequence of the upstream part of that operon as a binding site for uh, the RNA subunits. But we've done a number of experiments in which we've tried to regulate the amount of RNA and the protein in E. coli, and none of them have worked. That is to say, changing the amount of RNA doesn't change the amount of protein. Changing the amount of protein doesn't change the amount of RNA. That's about all I can say about that. Is that what you wanted to know? I'm wondering whether the tRNA synthesis is, a, is affected oh, oh, by that's the... that's a separate yeah. issue. Uh, uh, the RNA subunit is under the relaxed stringent control. Okay? And I think so is the uh, protein subunit. So if you starve the cells for uh, amino acids or they go into stationary phase, you stop making both the RNA and the protein subunit. Please join me uh, in uh, thanking uh, Professor Orman for a wonderful lecture today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.